This message first aired on the radio on October 28, 2003. We are at the edge in our study of the time of the captivity, and the time of the captivity is a study all by itself. In fact, it's a very deep and detailed study all by itself, just to study the various captivities, the servitudes that comprise the captivity of both Israel and Judah, their differing servitudes, the differing time frames. It's quite a complex study. It's a very valuable study, and it's a study that we're not going to do at this time. So we're going to sweep through it, but we're, we might put it this way, as we're studying the dispensations of God, that Israel's going into captivity. We're going to look at Jehoaz, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, and we're going to see just the kind of final struggle according to the flesh that Judah puts up before it enters into the Babylonian captivity and the servitude that is in Babylon. We're going to look at that today, and then we're going to look at Daniel. But I want to say we're entering into the fourth quarter of the dispensation of the law. And so all the children of Israel here, uh, they've handled the kickoff from Moses and Joshua. And now here, there's a little TV timeout, and all the children of Israel put their four fingers up in the air and say that the fourth quarter is theirs. And it's the worst quarter of Israel's national history. It's the worst quarter. If we say that the national history of Israel, according to the Scriptures, began with Moses at the Passover and ends with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ after the time of the captivity demonstrates a bit of relief, then this is the worst time nationally for Israel. Now, I won't say it's the worst time for them spiritually, because the worst time for Israel spiritually is probably the leadership and the characteristic of the people as they got themselves into captivity. In fact, the idolatry that marked the period of time from Solomon to Zedekiah is really spiritually the worst, maybe the worst time of Israel, if we exclude the time where they rejected the Son of God, of course. But in the captivity, as they begin to be under the chastisement of God, they begin to realize, at least in some way, their sin. And to an extent, they put away the idolatry. They certainly put away the open idolatry that got them there. Well, we'll look at Second Kings, and we're going to look at Second Kings 23, just by way of bringing ourselves up to speed and overcoming the period of time that we've left this off. And we'll look at Second Kings 23, and what we're really seeing is the fruit of Manasseh. You might remember Manasseh. Manasseh was the young son, 12 years old, that was born and raised up to be king at age 12 during the final 15 years that Hezekiah received from the Lord by pleading for more time to get his house in order. Well, he didn't plead for more time to get his house in order. He just pled for more time. God gave it to him, and God had told him to get his house in order because he was going to die. And you remember we took a lesson from that, that when God tells you to get your house in order, then get your house in order. And maybe more time is not a blessing whatsoever. In fact, I'm among those who believe that Hezekiah would have been better off, and so would the children of Israel, if he would have just died and there wouldn't have been any Manasseh. 
And nevertheless, that's speculation. There was a Manasseh, and he was the Ahab of Judah. He was the most wicked king that ever rose up in Judah. And then there are these that follow him, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachim, Zedekiah, all who continue in wickedness. But in the interim, we had Josiah, who was, we had hoped, sort of a break in the wickedness of Manasseh. And Josiah was an iconoclast, and he started to destroy the high places. He didn't get it all done. He started putting the Sodomites out. He didn't get it all done. Uh, but he did quite a work. He got rid of the workers that had familiar spirits, the wizards, uh, the images, the idolatry, the abominations that were in the land of Judah. He put those away. He tried to perform the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. He turned to the Lord like nobody did before him or nobody did after him with all of his heart and all of his soul. Nevertheless, he did not overcome the wickedness of Manasseh. It tells us in Second Kings 23, verse 26, Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. In fact, Josiah didn't finish quite as well as we'd hoped, because he made agreement with Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, and went up against the king of Assyria, and therefore he was slain by the king of Assyria. And, excuse me, he went with the king of Assyria up against the king of Egypt, and was therefore slain by the king of Egypt. And now the king of Egypt begins to put his descendants in some captivity. And Jehoaz, uh, his son, came into power, and Pharaoh Necho put Jehoaz in bands at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem and put the land into a tribute. And so here Josiah's ill-advised and unwarranted fighting against Egypt with the king of Assyria got his son, Jehoaz, got him into bad books with the king of Egypt, and he was now put under tribute to Egypt. And so you might say that Judah experienced a brief form of captivity with Egypt, and he paid taxes to Egypt, and he, had, of course, he paid tribute to Egypt, so he had to raise taxes in Judah to do that. And then up rose Jehoiakim, and he began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he was a wicked person after the manner of Manasseh. And in the days of Jehoiakim, here comes Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years and then rebelled against him, and of course it only got worse. Now you remember that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, it was Hezekiah that introduced Babylon to the riches of the children of Judah. There wasn't anything in the treasures of his house or the house of the Lord that he didn't show the king of Babylon. And you remember Isaiah asked him, what are you doing, you moron? And uh, Hezekiah said, oh, these guys are from a long ways away. And Isaiah the prophet told him, well, after your days, these guys will come in and capture the people. And Hezekiah says, isn't it great that there'll be peace in my time? A very short-looking, very nearsighted king, 
was Hezekiah. Only cared about himself, and it would have been better if he had just died when the Lord told him his time was up. And let that be a lesson to you. There's worse things that can happen than your death. Earlier this week, I heard an interesting story about a great man of God who went willingly into the fire of Roman persecution, and I'll say Roman Catholic persecution, and died as so many did in their fires, great Christian, and there was nothing better that he could do than to die, and he died a great man, and he died a courageous man, and so there are worse things than death, and to live as a coward, and to live for one's own pleasure, it's better to die, and according to the scripture, is death while living. Well, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, who followed after the sins of Manasseh, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, raised in his stead. Now this guy was about 18 years old when he reigned, and he only reigned for three months. And already the Lord had sent in the Chaldees and the Syrians and the Moabites and the children of Ammon against Judah to destroy it, just like he said, just like he said by the word of the prophets. Now here Ezekiel told the children of Judah, don't resist. Jeremiah told them, don't resist. God is doing this for our sins. They had gone against the advice of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And so the resisting every word of God that comes, these wicked kings come in, and they fight when they ought not to, and they don't fight when they ought to. And here's Jehoiachin, he's a young fella, and he only reigns three months, but those three months he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to what his father did. And at that time it tells us in Second Kings 24, verse 10, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants, and his princes, and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon the king of Israel had made the temple of the Lord. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained save the poor sort of people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon and the king's mother and the king's wives and the officers and the mighty of the land. And that would be the well trained of the land, the mighty of the land, would be the well-trained of every kind. Whether we've discussed craftsmen, he took out the craftsmen, he took out the educated people, he took out the priests, he took out even the prophets. He took out Ezekiel. Certainly Ezekiel was taken into Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah left, Ezekiel taken. He took Daniel and Azariah and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. He took those out and carried them into Babylon, where they would be eunuchs, as the scriptures forespoke, as the prophets foretold. And 
These were all taken to Babylon, and then the king of Babylon pointed a regent, really an under-king or an underlord, Mataniah, his father's brother, king in the stead of Jehoiachin, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. He gave him a name, taking power over him, called him instead of Mataniah, who was the uncle of Jehoiachin. He gave him the name Zedekiah when he was 21, and he made him the titular head of the poorest that were left in Judah. What a sad state. What an undoing. That's the end of Judah, which is the end of all of Israel. And now God has raised up Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And that has a particular importance in Scripture, which we'll look at when we come back after this brief message. Well, won't you stay with us for it? Well, the shtick of Zedekiah isn't very good. Here's this guy appointed to be a caretaker in Judah, and he's been told, and he's been told by every prophet, by Jeremiah, by Ezekiel. He can understand the forward-going prophecies of Isaiah, that this is going to happen. He can read it in the book of the law, that the captivity is intended by God on Israel. It is God who raised up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Zedekiah could realize that he needs to just behave himself and take what discipline the Lord has placed upon the children of Judah. But that's not what happened. It tells us Zedekiah did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. See, it doesn't matter. We like to think that when discipline or punishment or the consequences of our actions come upon us, we like to think that, well, that will change our behavior. But it really doesn't. And God knows that. The problem with us is that our behavior doesn't change, but that we get worse and worse. And that's why God solved the problem with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the death of Christ, substituting his life for us, Christ dying for his enemies. We are all enemies of Christ, at least in our minds, by wicked works at some time. And so Christ died for his enemies, and he substitutes his life for the life of the one who believes in him. And so God not only saves us from the penalty of our sins, but he also gives us a new nature, which thirsts and hungers after righteousness, which is created perfectly in Christ, and that new nature is not a nature that sins. It is a nature at war with the nature that sins. So every Christian has a dual nature, has two natures at war against each other. If you want to read about that, read Romans 11, and you'll see uh, something of your own agony as you struggle against sin, having believed in Christ. So Christ doesn't fix the problem. He eliminates the problem. Christ doesn't fix the sinner. He eliminates the sinner. And that is why... Uh, he does it the way he does it. Well, this guy, uh, Zedekiah, he's just a sinner. And even though he's seen all but the poorest taken out of the land of Judah, nevertheless, he still does the same kind of evil as his predecessors. And it tells us in Second Kings twenty four twenty, through the anger of the Lord, it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, until he had cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. 
imagine. With all that has proceeded, he still rebels. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, nine years after he was set up by Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and all his host against Jerusalem, pitched against it, they built forts against it round about, and the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. So he got over a year of siege, about a year and a half, in fact. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city. There was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night, by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city, round about, and the king went the way toward the plain, and the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king, and overtook him where? In the plains of Jericho, of all places. So where Israel began to take the land is where they were finally overcome. And... His army was scattered from him. They took the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. They slew his sons, that is, the sons of Zedekiah, before his eyes, and put his eyes out. They put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. That's the picture, really, that Zedekiah here, a picture of Israel in its final estate. Blinded without sons, in fetters, in bondage, and carried him into Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees, there were the captain of the guard, break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. And now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with a remnant of the multitude and Debuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. So here now Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes Zedekiah, sends his captain Nebuzaradan to go in and destroy Jerusalem totally, Burn down the house of the Lord. Burn down the king's house. Make a total devastation of the land of the children of Israel. And then just leaves the poor of the people. And so it tells us these words in Second Kings 25, verse 21. So Judah was carried away out of their land. And that's what the captivity is. The total carrying away of Israel first by the Assyrians who were subsequently overtaken by the Babylonians and now the carrying away of Judah and the destruction of the city and of the temple and of the house of the king and the poor of the land are left and here some thought that they would escape some thought that well we'll leave we'll run off into Egypt and escape this captivity and they ran off into Egypt against better advice, and they even took Jeremiah with them. But Nebuchadnezzar also took Egypt. And so Nebuchadnezzar is a vessel raised up by God to bring Israel into captivity. Now this is one of the most amazing pieces of work that God has done, is to raise up the Gentile world power. We could say this happened approximately in 500 B.C that this took place. It's a nice round number. And if we look at this, 
then from our perspective now in 2000 AD, we can say, well, for about 2,500 years, it has been the times of the Gentiles. Just as God raised up Moses to be the leader of Israel and brought Israel to its climax with King David and Solomon, God also raised up Gentile world power to rule in the earth even until now. And this is a remarkable work. This is a work that it would be hard to see. It would be hard to find the disclosure of it, except for that it's laid out for us very carefully in the book of Daniel. And so, despite the fact that we skip over very many scriptures which describe this period of time to us in much more detailed way, we skip over the prophecies of Isaiah, we skip over the prophecy of Jeremiah and his lamentation. We skip over the prophecies of Ezekiel. And we go forward all the way to the book of Daniel. We also overlook a wonderful historical book that could teach us quite a lot about this period of time, the book of Esther. I'm going to take us into the book of Daniel briefly, and not to exhaust that book in any way or to study it in detail, though the study of Daniel in detail is one of the most valuable studies anybody can do in the Bible. But I think that by looking at the prophet Daniel and by looking at just a few of the elements that are found in that book, we can bring ourselves, at least prophetically, not only to the time we're in now, but to the time of the Lord's first coming. And we can see how Israel fares in captivity through the eyes of Daniel, the prophet. Now, it's interesting about the book of Daniel and the study of Daniel the prophet because the book itself says it's a book that's locked up to the children of Israel. And so it's a sealed up book to the children of Israel. And now this may be my own narrow experience, but in my own narrow experience, in the conversations that I have with Jewish people about the book of Daniel, they're almost completely ignorant of this book. Uh, it's a very rare, well, I haven't ever met a Jewish person who has studied or who considers carefully the book of Daniel. In fact, my own experience with a Jewish person around the book of Daniel was when I referenced it, they told me, listen, I'm not a Catholic. And I said, well, neither am I, but Daniel was not a Catholic. Daniel is a Jew. I don't know why somebody would think a person named Daniel was necessarily Roman Catholic, maybe a Patrick or a Mike. But a Daniel, I don't know why he thought that. Well, I said, he's Jewish. Well, I don't care. I don't want you praying with this baseball team. That was actually the controversy. So I was thrown out of the league. Well, that being said, the book of Daniel, very profitable for many things, but we're going to use it in a very limited way, and that is to describe and just to lay out the time of the Gentiles. And this is something that God did. Just as God took from Egypt and brought ten judgments upon Egypt and took Israel out of Egypt to raise it up to be the most powerful nation in the world with the intention that it would be the leader of all the nations, that it would have the house of God, which is the house of prayer for all the nations, so that it would bring the word of God to all the nations. God's intention for Israel was to do that. When Israel failed to fulfill that commission, God raised up in its place and handed over the kingdoms of this world to 
the Gentiles, and not only just to any Gentiles, but handed it over to the Gentiles in an orderly way, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And this is one of the most amazing pieces of prophecy in the Scripture. And as prophecies came in diverse manners, in different ways, at different times, to the fathers through the prophets, this particular prophecy came to us through the interpretation of the prophet Daniel of a dream by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a marvelous dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, Nebuchadnezzar being the head of the whole earth, being the chief king of the entire earth at this time. If you look in Daniel chapter 2, you find the marvelous dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which lays out for us the future history of Gentile power from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, even till now, the time of this broadcast. We're still within the scope of that marvelous prophecy, the image that was revealed by Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. Now, let me give a little background here. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, a ferocious leader, a great military power, with the ability to be immensely cruel. Uh, you look at the punishment of Zedekiah, you can see that it's intensely cruel. Kill all of his sons before his eyes, then pluck his eyes out, because that's the last thing he saw, and then put him in chains. According to Babylonian history, a nose ring was stuck through his nose, and he was brought into Babylon that way. The children of Israel all brought into captivity, but not all treated as poorly as they could have been. Yes, they were treated poorly, but not all treated as poorly as he could have been. He examined, and he wanted the best of the young men, of the children of Judah, and of those best were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they were brought into the courtyard, or the court of, we might say, the, the house of Nebuchadnezzar. And they were attended to by the head of the eunuchs, and no doubt they were also made eunuchs, just as the scriptures foretold. And God oversaw these young men. God had a special tending to these young men, and they had a special heart for God. They desired to be faithful to God, which was unusual. And though God took his people into captivity, and though God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and handed world power over to the Gentiles, that does not mean that God has forsaken his people. God didn't forsake his people in the captivity. Neither has he forsaken his people today in their setting aside. They've not been forsaken. They've been set aside. And there remains a remnant in Israel today, according to grace. And there was a faithful remnant in the captivity, according to grace, through whom God moved. And certainly Daniel would have to be the most prominent of all of those. Daniel, and maybe you know the story, maybe you don't, but Daniel becoming one who could understand and interpret dreams and had the special attention of God. So in Daniel chapter 2, we can just begin reading this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. 
And the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream, and then the interpretation thereof, you'll be cut in pieces, and your house will be made a dunghill. So that's the challenge to these religious leaders. We'll see what they do with it when we come back in just a minute. So here we're going to learn a little bit about the religion of the ancient Babylon. Ancient Babylon probably known best for its religious system. The Gentile world powers going to evolve, or we might even say devolve, into four categories. The first being the ba and the prominence of the Babylonian system can be found right here in this verse that we read. The king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. There we see these different aspects of priestcraft, these different parts of the religious system of the Babylonians. And these are supposed to be fellows that uh, ward off evil spirits and that somehow divine the will of heaven and proclaim the future, who work different kinds of wizardry, I suppose doing incantations and so forth. And then the Chaldeans, who not only were fighters uh, in bands, but who really are the forerunners of the religious leaders that we see in the New Testament, which would be the Pharisees. They're uh, forerunners of them in many, many ways. Uh, well, now the king has assigned them. He says, look, I, the, the dream that I had, I don't remember it. So what you're going to have to do, here's your charge. Tell me what the dream is, and then interpret it for me. Then spoke the Chaldeans of the king in Syriac, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and then we'll show it to you. You've got to tell us. And the king answered and said, the thing is gone for me. If you're not going to make known to me the dream and then the interpretation, well, how about I just cut you in pieces and turn your house into a dunghill? But if you show the dream and the interpretation, you'll receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Now go get the job done. Well, they answered and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. We'll show the interpretation of it. The king said, I know of a certainty you're trying to gain time because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you don't make known unto me the dream, there's just one decree for you because you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and that way I'll know you can interpret it. The Chaldeans answered before the king, there's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, ruler that has ever asked anything like this from any magician or astrologer or a Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requires, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause, the king was angry and furious and commanded that all of the wise men of Babylon, or all the magicians, all the members of this religious class, he just said, just get rid of all, slay all of them. Just slay them all. Now, I find this very interesting because here's a leader that knows that he's surrounded by a bunch of liars and manipulators. 
And I suppose every leader on earth knows that he's surrounded by liars and manipulators. And what a lonely thing it must be to be the main leader of the whole earth, which Nebuchadnezzar is, and to be surrounded with a bunch of people that all they do is lie and manipulate you. Do you wonder why it is, brother, that the Scripture commands you to pray for those who are in authority? You ever wonder about that? Can you imagine what it would be like today to be President Bush? Now, you could, it could be President anyone, but today it's President Bush. Can you imagine what it's like to be him and to be surrounded with so many manipulative liars that you can't even count them? And so that's why we have to pray for such a one. That's why Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah spent their time, I'm sure, praying for Nebuchadnezzar, despite whatever his faults may be, and there are many. I mean, if you think that the President of the United States had the capacity for wickedness, you just have to read a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar here. But Daniel now goes to the Arioch. Now, the Arioch is the captain of the guard, and he goes to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, and he says to the Arioch, the king's captain, why is there such a hasty decree from the king? Why is he so quick to kill everybody? Because after all, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are part of this whole system of priestcraft. They're in the college, you might say, they're in the college of priests, in, and they're being trained in these dark arts of the Babylonians the Chaldeans. And so in one sweeping move, they're also going to be killed. And Daniel said, what's the big hurry to kill us? And Arioch tells the thing to Daniel. And it says, then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and he would show the king the interpretation. And so he promised if he was just given a little time, he could give the interpretation that the king wanted along with, of course, he has to recount for the king what his dream was. It tells us Daniel went to his house, made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. They would desire the mercies of God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his fellows would not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so here now we have this wonderful word, secret. This, uh, best I can tell, the first time this word is used in Scripture, this is the Chaldean form of a word. Uh, here we have uh, the Bible here in Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7. is now written in Aramaic. It is probably, uh, this is a Western Aramaic language that it's written in, called Syriac or Western Aramaic. And uh, here's this word secret, which the Apostle Paul uses repeatedly, translated into the Greek the word mysterion or mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed, for example. The same word, mysterion, used by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 13, where we see the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. This is now mystery teaching, or open secrets. They desire to know the secret, or the mystery, of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And it tells us in Daniel 2.19, Then was the secret, or the mysterion, revealed unto Daniel in a night vision, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And now... The Lord gives to Daniel the understanding of this dream, gives him to know the dream, and also gives him the interpretation. So 
Daniel now says this, and we want to read a little out of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's prayer as he understands who God is and what God does. It says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes times and the seasons. He removeth kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge unto them that know understanding. I'm impressed with this statement. It says, He removeth kings and sets up kings. We have a raging controversy in our country because General Boykin, a Christian man, had the audacity to say that God put President Bush in office. He also said God put President Clinton in office and puts leaders in office in every land, which is not just a Christian belief, but apparently also a Jewish belief, because here it is in Daniel chapter 2. He removes kings, sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise, knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thy God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might, and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Now he thanked God for revealing to him truth. And I just want to ask you, my Christian brother, my Christian sister, do you ask God to make known to you truth in his word? After all, our purpose in this broadcast, BibleStudy.net, our purpose is that you would enjoy the Bible. And one of the great enjoyable things is this kind of experience that Daniel had. Now, God is not going to give you his word as he gave it to Daniel, that is, apart from the written word. He's not going to do that. He's not doing that today. Today, God is giving you his word that is written, and he's giving you understanding. God's not giving revelation today. He's giving illumination in his word. Now you say, well, I think I'd rather experience what Daniel experienced. Well, you don't get that. But I'm sure that Daniel would have preferred to have the entire word of God as we have. And I want to also tell you that Daniel was a man who did whatever it took to study the Word of God. And when God did write his Word down, for example, the prophecy of Jeremiah was written down and Daniel studied it, Daniel turned to the prophecy of Jeremiah to learn about the times that he was in. He didn't just wait for God to give him direct revelation. When he had the Word of God, he used the Word of God. Do we? Well, so... He thanks God for this. And then Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men. And he said, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king. I will show the king the interpretation. And so Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's the name they gave him. Art thou able to make known unto me the dream whereof I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that is the revealer of secrets. God in heaven is the revealer of secrets. He's the one who reveals secrets. The Lord Jesus Christ showed himself to be the revealer of secrets. God is the one who does it and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. 
For thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And so we find this is a prophetic dream. And here's what he said. O king, you saw and beheld a great image, that great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee, and the form was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest, till that a stone was cut out without hands, and smote the image upon the feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, became like the chaff, chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Well, that ought to whet your appetite. Daniel spared all of the Chaldeans. They hate him for it, of course. He saves their life. The king rewards Daniel and makes him the chancellor of the religious college of Babylon. And he's going to give the interpretation of this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And we'll look at that next time.